0: On this edition of Commute For a lot of things in life The rules are pretty clearly defined On how you become qualified to do them, right? I mean, to become a doctor? You go to med school Lawyer? Law school How about a Wikipedian? For a website that has a reputation of Anyone can edit anything It's often nearly impossible to become someone Whose edits on the popular website Wikipedia Actually
1: stick If you ever saw a commercial for McDonald's in the 80s and 90s, you probably remember a magical fictional world called McDonaldland, inhabited by some strange, sort of lovable, but mostly creepy characters. But 30 years later, where are these characters, and what is the status of McDonaldland? What was Grimace? He was like a piece of jello. I, I will tell you what the theory is, and then you can decide for yourself.
0: If you woke up tomorrow and found out that you were a billionaire... How do you think you'd spend your money? Maybe a couple cars, maybe a couple houses, maybe you'd even buy an island. I'll bet you one thing you wouldn't do, at least I know I wouldn't do it because it sounds like a lot of work, start a brand new city. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. Jay, my friend, we've talked about this many times, you are a school teacher, so I'm sure you have a prepared speech about your distrust of one of my favorite websites, Wikipedia. So I'm going to start off this segment by letting you get that rant off of your chest.
1: Well, I mean, I might surprise you a little bit because I usually tell the kids that I pretty much trust Wikipedia as a source. Um, I don't let them use it on their papers, though, just because I tell them like, hey, when you get into the real world, you can't use this as a source. So I don't want to put them in that habit. But, I mean, I use it for things when I'm trying to find things out. I know you and I share in common that uh, we're both too scared to watch horror movies. So Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things to use Wikipedia for is to read the plot of horror movies because I still want to know what happens. I just don't want to watch it.
0: 100%. One of my favorite things I've ever read was how the Saw trilogy went because I'm definitely never watching Saw, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting premise. But anyway, uh, Jay, the first ever edit on Wikipedia, okay, so get this, the first ever edit took place on January 15th, 2001, so just over 20 years ago, and I'm glad that you share my love for Wikipedia, because I really do, I love Wikipedia, I use it literally every day, and while I do understand why folks like yourself don't promote it as a scholarly source, it's an incredible place for information. But Jay, the same unique attribute that makes it an incredible resource for information is the same thing that makes it ultimately untrustworthy, right? Anyone can edit anything on the site. At least that's what we're told. How does it really work? If I go change the famously short Tom Cruise's height to six foot seven instead of whatever he actually is, 4:11 or whatever, would it stay like that forever, for a while, for a week, for a day, for an hour? Who are the gatekeepers of truth on Wikipedia, and how do they become that way? I got interested in this, Jay, when I read an article the other day about a lady that has devoted a, a major portion of her life to basically scanning Wikipedia and making sure that the Nazis and Adolf Hitler are properly portrayed in the historical accounts of World War II. Okay, her name is, uh, this is going to be hard to pronounce, Cassinia Kaufman. Kaufman wanted to change the often soft and bluntly far too kind language around Nazis and Hitler to reflect the actual horrors of World War II. But she just had one problem. She struggled to get her updates to actually stick. Her changes would almost immediately get changed back. Well, let's take a step back and discuss how Wikipedia editing actually works. It's basically a role-playing game, or an RPG for short. Now, Jay, we've previously talked about the RPG game Dungeons & Dragons on this show, and Wired Magazine compares the Wikipedia editing process to the game. So let's stick with that. It'll make it really simple to understand. There are roughly six and a half million pages on Wikipedia. So in RPG speak, that would be quest locations. Almost 41 million Wikipedians, or Wikipedia editors, RPG comparison, game players and an unending number of wiki trolls who constantly change content, a.k.a. villains. And Jay, this analogy is exactly why teachers like yourself and so many others are so against Wikipedia satisfying the need to provide scholarly sources for acceptable work. There is a hidden battle, a power struggle, have you, for content regulation constantly raging behind the Wikipedia scenes. So let me break it down for you like this. Let's say that you, Jay, are a new user to Wikipedia. You see an error on a page for your hometown. You make an edit, and you submit your reasoning for the edit as, I'm entitled to make this change because I grew up here, and I went to college, and I have a degree in history. Depending on the size of your town, your edit may stay for a bit... But it will more than likely be almost immediately removed because the general rule of thumb by Wikipedians, you know, the gatekeepers of the content, is that any edit must stand or fall based on its ability to be verified with citations by reliable and vetted third-party sources, aka it takes a ton of work. To become someone capable of making a standing edit, and going back to the RPG analogy, you have to build up your character you got to earn some street cred by developing third-party articles yourself and increasing your success rate of implementing minor edits on wiki pages that actually get approved. One of the most prolific editors is a guy named Stephen Pruitt. Pruitt has successfully made over 3.8 million edits on Wikipedia since 2006. He built up his respect within the wiki community by constantly making tons of small incremental changes. He'll correct poor grammar, he'll add non-controversial categories to popular articles, and he'll improve the flow of pre-existing page content. So Jay, armed with this new knowledge that I just dropped on you, it's amazing that anything works as well on the internet as Wikipedia does. Like, it's truly amazing. Sure, there are trolls like me wanting to change the height of celebrities and mess with a rival sports team's mascot. But people like Steven Pruitt have devoted their lives to defending the honor of the wiki article. Even if important changes, like those being attempted by Kaufman, the World War II crusader I referenced at the beginning,
1: sometimes get a little caught in the in-between. So I'm kind of thinking about, like, what if Wikipedia was started today... You know, would it kind of function as it does if it was started in 2021? And I think we know the answer it's no. But it's because when Wikipedia started, it was the right time. You know, because those early days of the internet, it really did feel different when you were online. It felt like we were kind of united in this thing and it was new and it was exciting and it was going to change the world in only positive ways and the internet kind of was this communal experience and that's really what wikipedia is right it's kind of a community holding up the website
0: and like 2008 a friend of mine went on to morgan freeman's page and uh, said that he was the star of forrest gump and it stayed for two days (laughs) <laughs> that would never happen now. It would stay for maybe two seconds.
1: So Dave, I know you're not really a fast food guy now, but I'm sure that you were to some degree as a child. And uh, when you'd run through the McDonald's drive through or when you'd see McDonald's commercials on TV... Does the name Land sort of ring a bell for you? Does that bring back any images?
0: thousand percent, man. Two quick stories on this. One, if any of our listeners have kids, they'll feel me on this. When you take your kids to your parents' house, so when they go to the grandparents, they'll, they'll use stuff that you used as a kid. And so when my son goes to my parents' house, occasionally he'll use a plate that I got from a McDonald's Happy Meal in, like, I don't know, 1994. And it's of the McDonald's Land people. Like, my parents still have it. That's story number one. Story number two, I got really scarred about the McDonald's play place when I was 10 years old because I was a really tall kid, and so we went there for a birthday party, and they have that, the Hamburglar, um, who I'm sure you'll talk about, had his finger, it's almost like if you're over this, if you're too tall, over the Hamburglar's finger, you can't get in the play place, and I was such a tall 10-year-old, I couldn't get in, and some other lady who we didn't know told the management that I was too tall playing on the play place, and they kicked me out of there as a 10-year-old kid.
1: Oh, man. Well, if you grew up in the 80s or 90s like we did, you probably have memories of ads for McDonald's that featured a fictional world inhabited by characters called McDonaldland. And when you went to a McDonald's restaurant, you probably saw a play place that was themed in a similar way, populated by strange characters like Grimace, who has Grimace. been rumored to be a sentient taste bud. So I'll give you a second <laughs> to kind of think about that if you agree or if you disagree. <laughs>
0: the person who came up with that was for sure on acid.
1: Now, the original design of Grimace is, like, it's terrifying. Uh, Well, you know, know, we've we've talked about Ronald
0: McDonald on this show. The original Ronald McDonald was a nightmare.
1: They really edited him down to make him look a little bit more lovable. He was terrifying when he was first created. I'm going to look him up while you're talking. Another one, uh, the Hamburglar, a sort of a larcenist-type figure who had a habit of lifting hamburgers. Mayor McCheese, who I guess was the elected leader of McDonaldland and had a human body, but a giant cheeseburger as a head. Officer Big Mac, who was the local law enforcement and also had a giant cheeseburger for a head. There were also some less known characters like the Fry Guys, which were kind of these little monsters that ate fries. The Professor, who sort of like a mad scientist type character birdie, the early bird who was promoting breakfast captain crook, who was kind of like a pirate, uh, the McNugget buddies who were alive chicken nuggets, (laughs) which I guess they got eaten and they were like really excited about it. Uh, and then a monster called I am hungry, which was sort of this fuzzball monster nicknamed the vice president of snacking, and so many others. And the commercials by today's standards are sort of terrifying, but, you know, the 80s were just a different time. But what you may notice, Dave, is that these characters have sort of disappeared. So my question was, where did they go? And the answer to that question is as interesting as it is complicated. So to begin, you have to realize that the 80s were sort of this golden age of children's advertising. Advertising on television was consumed more by children than ever, and the practice has sort of had to change in our current age of streaming. Characters like the Kool-Aid Man or Ronald McDonald became synonymous with brands, and really the idea at its core was kind of brilliant. You sell your product, then you get children attached to a character that they can play with at home, and the advertising essentially runs itself within the home. McDonald Land and the characters who live there really took McDonald's, the brand, to new heights and has contributed to making McDonald's one of the most recognized brands in the world. So where did Land come from, and where is it today? Well, let's go back to the beginning. McDonald's originally hired an ad agency called Needham, Harper, and Steers to create a universe of characters and market it to children to build the brand. But before constructing the universe, the ad agency reached out to Sid and Marty Croft, who had created one of the biggest children's television programs of the time, a show called H.R. Puffin' Stuff. Needham wanted to know if the Crofts would be willing to partner with McDonald's on an ad campaign featuring their iconic cast of characters. When the Crofts didn't accept, McDonald's started airing commercials featuring McDonaldland in 1971, and it was very clear that the campaign was so similar to the world and the characters of H.R. Puff and Stuff that McDonald's would be headed to court. So, H.R. Puffin stuff, which, I mean, Dave, I was not familiar with this. Like, did you ever watch this show?
0: No, I know what it is just in name, uh, but I have no idea what it even looks like.
1: Maybe, too, since we were kind of born in, like, the late 80s. Maybe this was more of an early 80s thing, right? And it just didn't catch us at the right time. So HR Puffin Stuff featured a human boy who had been shipwrecked on a place called Living Island, where he had adventures alongside a cast of characters, including a dragon named HR Puffin Stuff. The characters, who were played by a combination of real people and life-sized puppets, lived in this city alongside usually inanimate objects that also had their own personalities and voices. The issue here is that when you compare Living Island to McDonald Land, the similarities are pretty striking. The similarities between Mayor McCheese and the title character, for example, are pretty close, from the oversized head, to the suit, to the fact that they both wore mayoral sashes, but even past the similarities, it gets worse. McDonald's even went so far as to recruit employees of H.R. Puffin Stuff who designed characters and sets. On top of that, McDonald's even recruited voice acting talent from H.R. Puff and Stuff to do the voices for their McDonaldland characters. The lawsuit then, ultimately brought against McDonald's, was centered around the idea that not only had McDonald's lifted the intellectual property here, but also that they had cost H.R. Puff & Stuff their audience growth. From their perspective, as McDonald's grew in popularity, H.R. Puff & Stuff declined as a result. So the trial began, and Sid and Marty Croft Television Productions, Incorporated versus McDonald's Corp was focused on the idea of whether or not children could tell the two properties apart. So McDonald's argued that, yes, while they did lift many of the ideas for their McDonald land from H.R. Puffin stuff, they did not lie about that. They were straight up and said, yes, we did borrow a lot of our ideas. But their argument was that they had made enough changes to it that they had not stolen intellectual property. Now, McDonald's ultimately was found guilty and was forced to pay the Crofts more than one million dollars and were forced to stop running promotions featuring McDonaldland and several of the characters who were lifted from the Crofts. Ultimately, though, Dave, the question here is, did it really matter? Because yes, while McDonald's did lose the case, they still built their empire on the back of this advertising campaign in the meantime. The $1 million fine then, it seems less like a punishment and more just kind of like the cost of doing business. All right, Jay, finally,
0: uh, you know how we did a segment a while back on the impact money can have on happiness? You remember
1: that? Yeah, I think we came to the conclusion that uh, more money does not equal more happiness. It does not, but do you remember what was the max total that the
0: research says will influence your happiness? I believe it was uh, $75,000. That's it. My man listens to my segments. $75,000 is what the research says, roughly. Uh, is the amount that, up until then, money affects your happiness. After that, eh, it's not always a given. If you aren't careful, money after $75,000 that you make will not make you happier. Now, Jay, while I think both of us believe that research, it's also hard to think that a billion dollars wouldn't just kind of automatically make you a teeny bit happier, right? I mean, I, I know it's more money, more problems, but still. Anyways. While the research clearly proves that money may not tangibly make you happier, one thing is still certain. Lots of money provides lots of opportunities. And J4 billionaires, like a guy I'm about to tell you about named Mark Laurie, the next opportunity to spend some cash might just be to build a new city. With the cleanliness of Tokyo, the diversity of New York, and the social services of a place like Stockholm, billionaire Mark Lurie has officially laid out his next money spending goal. Lurie recently announced plans to create a limited 5 million person new American city called Telosa, a city, Jay, that would be completely made from scratch and cost roughly $400 billion dollars. So who is Mark Lori? Lori has been called the LeBron James of the e-commerce world. He's a 50-year-old businessman and entrepreneur from New York who served as the president and CEO of Walmart's e-commerce division before stepping down earlier this year. And Jay, Lori was super successful at Walmart. Making Walmart the number two online shopping site in the US and increasing its stock price by more than hundred percent while he was at the helm. So back to the proposal for this new city of Telosa. Lori pictures his proposed new city, by the way, Telosa is spelled T-E-L-O-S-A. Telosa. Laurie pictures his proposed new city as the most open. Most fair and most inclusive, he doesn't have lofty goals, does he? And most inclusive city in the world. The plan calls for a 150,000 acre city project that would revolutionize life as we know it by featuring a 15 minute design. So, Jay, here's what that means. A 15-minute design means that all residents in Telosa could access their workplace, school, or desired shopping experience within a 15-minute trip from their home. Lori hired a famed architectural group, Jacques Ingalls Group, to design the city, and planners are currently scouting America for a spot to build. Current landing possibilities for Telosa include Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Texas, and the Appalachian region. And Jay, if this is going to actually happen, it might actually happen soon. The first phase of construction has a target date of 2030. And the first phase, a phase that would accommodate 50,000 residents across 1,500 acres, would cost roughly $25 million and take place between 2030 and 2035. And if you're thinking this sounds like a bad idea, and it personally screams futuristic cult to me, well, you might be right. Lori said his new city would have a transparent government, allowing residents to vote on all city budgets and decision-making, and offer all residents shared ownership of land. Want to plant a garden? Sure! Just get a couple million signatures of approval, and you're good to go to get your hands dirty
1: let's uh let's say it's the year you know 2030 telosa gets built in this image that you've described and uh they invite you to come live there What what are you doing what's your decision i'll see you later i'm out of (laughs) here you kidding me 15 minutes anywhere i want to go it seems like there's absolutely nothing that could go wrong
0: i could rise to prominence so quickly
1: see now you're already violating it it was all about equality and stuff and now you're over here talking about taking it over and having more power than everybody else get out of here you can't stay in telosa.
0: <laughs> oh and that will do it thanks for listening to this week's episode i'll be coming to you live here soon from telosa Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. It means a lot to us. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say hey at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.